Now, if you haven't done so, I invite you to turn in your Bibles or look in your bulletin to see a passage in the book of Numbers. And I'll read the passage in our bulletin. The passage, Numbers 32, 38 through 39, says, Nebo and Baal Maon, their names were changed, and Sibma. And they gave other names to the cities that they built. And the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and captured it and dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. It's, I think, a very good habit that I know some of our members have to read the bulletin in advance when the email comes out and to begin studying the passage. And so I received some emails asking, Pastor, what are you going to do with this text? (laughs) And I had to say, I have no idea what that text is about. We're in Numbers 33. Numbers 33, verses 38 and 39. Uh, And perhaps providentially, this is a reminder, bring your Bible, because we are going to be in it this morning. If you don't have one, there is the Pew Bible in front of you as well. So instead, Numbers 33, 38 and 39, we'll hear that in just a moment. Let me give you a little bit of context here, because we are in a one-off sermon. We are awaiting another series. This passage we're going to focus on this morning stands in the middle of a very long list of places describing the wandering of Israel after they left Egypt. Beginning at verse 1, going all the way to verse 49, it describes place to place that they went and where they camped over a 40-year period. Our passage stands in the midst of that. Now, just as a sample, verses 5 and 6 Say, so the people of Israel set out from Ramses and camped at Succoth. And they set out from Succoth and camped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. This goes for 49 verses. If it at all feels tedious to you to read that stretch of scripture, let it register with you how much more arduous it was for the people who actually experienced that. 40 years. And in the story, it wasn't, in a sense, necessary. It could have been a trip of simply a few weeks. But they came to the very border of the land, and they were not believing upon God and his promise to bring them in safely. They were fearful. They remained outside. And as a consequence, they spend decades wandering. The book of Hebrews tells us that is something of the story of the world at large, especially of people within the visible church. There are many people who stand among the church, and they come to the very border of salvation, and yet for lack of faith, they don't enter into the rest. That's what the book of Hebrews is really all about, going to the very spiritual aspect of faith in Christ. And as a consequence, they spend decades, maybe a lifetime, wandering in unbelief. They have the outward trappings of a Christian, and yet not the reality of Christ Now, our focus this morning is going to be on something right in the middle of it, verses 38 and 39. Hear together with me the word. And Aaron the priest went up Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there. And the fortieth year after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, on the first day of the fifth month. And Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering your people, for having appointed the ministry of the word. 
And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would exalt Christ among us, that with him we would be lifted up to our calling, that our faith would be strengthened, that repentance would be given as needed, in every way that you would be honored. Help us in our weakness. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The passage that we are focusing on this morning, verses 38 and 39, demonstrate, they exemplify a very important but a very simple rule of biblical interpretation. And that is to understand why it's necessary to read the Bible holistically. Kids, all I mean by that is we don't just read and keep a collection of individual verses that we like to come back to. It's not like you find in some tourist shops a big box of pretty rocks and you select the ones that you want into a bag. But we need to be familiar with the scriptures as a whole. And the reason for that is because some passages take for granted that you know other passages. They are to be understood in light of them. Take the Gospels. There are four of the so-called Gospels that tell the story of Jesus' earthly ministry. And yet they are not four different lives. They're like four different camera angles showing the same life, different episodes at times, different perspectives on the same stories. And so at times when I'm reading the Bible, I come to things and I think, I do not know what this is about. Those used to scare me. They would be upsetting to me. What does this mean? How do I fit this into my understanding? By this point, I've learned, and perhaps you've learned, just keep marching. And eventually, you'll come to parts that make it clear. If it's something the Lord needs you, wants you to understand, it is clear somewhere in Scripture. That's not only true of the Gospels, it's true of what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. These first five books tell certain stories three or four times over again. And that explains the brevity of our description of Aaron's death here. The Spirit takes for granted that you have passed through Numbers 20. We'll come to that in time in the sermon. But already earlier in the book, we've heard about why Aaron is going to die on the mountain. What we're going to see this morning is that through the death of Aaron upon this mountain, the Lord is underscoring two things to his people, two important ideas. The first is this. The Lord wants you to see in Aaron's death the importance of upholding God's holiness. Of upholding God's holiness, of making the most of it, living in light of it, honoring it. But he also does something else. In the death of Aaron, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit underscores God's willingness to uphold your holiness in Christ If you are not settled on that, if you don't come back to that a thousand times a week, you are going to be busy trying to uphold your own holiness and you will never get to the Lord's. You are too weak to do that and too impure. And so the Lord wants to bring you in this, the Holy Spirit speaks to you this morning, to bring you back to the sufficiency of grace in Christ in order to bring about the holiness that he calls each one of us to. That's what we consider this morning. Now, as we do that, we're going to do so first by looking at those two things I've just described. Those are going to be our main ideas. And then, by way of conclusion, I'll just lay before you some exhortations, some encouragements. We'll begin immediately with what I described first. And I'll put it to you as a question. You're reading this passage. You come to Numbers 38. 
or 33, verse 38, and you read about Aaron's death, how does this in any way underscore your responsibility to uphold the holiness of God? I do submit to you that you don't have to be some genius, you don't have to be an oracle. If you give it time and think on the story, and especially if you're familiar with how this story is touched in other parts of the Bible, you'll realize that is what it's about. This is not secret, it's not an enigma. But it will be helpful first to have a little bit of background about Aaron. Maybe you are younger here, maybe you are newer in the faith, or maybe you just need to be refreshed. Think about who Aaron is. So most people know the name of Moses. Moses is the one who leads God's people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt into the promised land, or rather to the very border. He ends up not being able to go in himself. And at first, Moses is afraid to speak to this great multitude and to speak to Pharaoh. And God condescends to allow Moses' brother Aaron to be kind of the mouthpiece. What a privilege to speak on behalf of the Lord for the sake of all of God's people. But not only that, Aaron is chosen by God to have the high honor of being the first high priest over the house of Israel. To serve in that function made him a picture of what we deeply need, someone who can intercede for us, someone who can go between us and an offended holy God to reconcile us. And ultimately, that is Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh. Aaron was chosen to get to be the first picture of the coming Christ in that way. And not only that, he was allowed, and no one else was, only the high priest, to go into the Holy of Holies, where God miraculously made his presence most manifest on the earth at that time. These are exalted privileges that he has as a priest Now, how does he do? Overall, relatively speaking, I think that it's fair to say that he did a pretty good job. There are not many times in the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, where we find Aaron being rebuked by the Lord for things. And yet he is not without sin. That's one of the arguments of the author of the book of Hebrews, why we need Jesus Christ, not just an earthly high priest, but someone who is sinless. Aaron sinned, and I want you to see an instance of that that bears on our passage this morning. Turn with me and look at Numbers chapter 20. Numbers 20 is describing the same episode from our chapter. Another reminder that all of the books of the Bible are not strictly linear. Some of them contain the same story within the same book several times. Verse 22 and following, it says, And they journeyed from Kadesh, and the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor, on the border of the land of Edom, Let Aaron be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel. Because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor. And strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron shall be gathered to his people and shall die there. 
Moses did as the Lord commanded. And they went up Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eliezer, his son. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. This passage makes it clear that Aaron's death, in some sense, is an act of discipline, not of damnation. He's still listed among the believers. He's gathered to his people. But God reserves the right and often acts upon it to discipline his children in this life in different ways, sometimes severely. And here, Aaron is being disciplined. What is he being disciplined for? It refers to how he rebelled at the waters of Meribah. What is that talking about? I'll simply recap. Earlier in their wanderings, the children of Israel are in a stretch of desert where there is no water. And we're talking about an immense host of people. There's no clear source of water, and they are feeling desperate. And as they had so often done, they begin to complain against the Lord and argue among one another. How is the leadership failing us now? In fact, the word Meribah there means place of striving, of quarreling. They're quarreling both with man and with God. And the Lord gave instructions to Moses and Aaron to come before all the people, to gather them together. And Moses was to speak And Aaron was to bear witness there, to speak graciously to a huge rock. Why? Well, the Lord had promised that through some miracle I don't profess to fully understand, he was going to bring forth water sufficient to slake the thirst of all of this huge multitude. And in that way, to give them a reminder, he could have obviously just provided a natural river, and often he did that throughout their journeys. But in this case, he wanted to give them a miraculous sign, a token, in a sense a sacrament of his gracious covenant love. He is able to provide, and even in the midst of their quarreling, he's willing to give graciously. And so Moses is supposed to speak gently to this rock, and Aaron is to bear witness in front of all the people. It's significant that even Aaron would be there as a priest. He especially underscores the mercy of the Lord, the intercession of the Lord. What happens? Not that. Moses and Aaron are so fed up with the people who are so ungrateful and so unbelieving, as so often we are, are we not? Moses goes out and he takes a staff and he whacks the rock. The Lord in mercy does cause the water to gush forth. But after 40 years of awaiting the promises, Moses and Aaron are told, for that you will not enter the land. The fact that Aaron is implicated in this suggests something about what his appearance looked like and what was going on in his heart. They took a moment of gospel mercy and they turned it into a moment of personal severity. And that is one of the ways, is it not, that we fail to uphold the holiness of the Lord. That's what they are judged for here. They failed to uphold my holiness in the sight of my people. They did it in two basic ways. The first is very simple. They broke a clear command of God. God said, speak. He didn't say strike. And in the most simple of commands, when we choose to do the opposite of what we know the Lord has called us to, we do not uphold his holiness. Whether it's a big thing or a little thing, as we would count it, 
we are called to uphold the holiness of the Lord. And that was not simply about Aaron and Moses. It sets an example for the whole, everybody's watching. And we live before a watching world. We are as priests in our own families, workplaces, and the church. But then there's another layer to their disobedience. They misrepresent the holiness of God's grace. God is holy in everything that he is holy. His holiness is not simply his moral severity, his justice. His holiness incorporates the promises of the gospel given in Jesus Christ. And here, again, this is a moment when the Lord wants them to represent his mercy and kindness. And instead they take out their own anger. And the Lord says, that wasn't my anger. Why does this matter so much? It's not just for their generation, but it plays on who Christ would be. I don't ask that you turn here, but do take note. In the New Testament, there are many places where the apostles explain or clarify how certain things that happened in the Old Testament were pictures of spiritual realities to come. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, says that that rock was, in a sense, a type of Christ, that the Holy Spirit was orchestrating a story that was to be a picture, kind of like when Abraham offers his son Isaac, God was orchestrating a picture of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4 says, Our fathers all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. The way that those waters flowed forth were a picture of what God had been doing for all those 40 years. To those who believed, he was supplying their spiritual need in a desert of sin. And here at a moment when they were supposed to represent the gospel of the Lord, they made it a matter of their own personal kingdom. Just last night, at the encouragement of my wife, I went to walk the dog and to listen to a chapter of a wonderful book on marriage. It's in fact simply titled Marriage by Paul Tripp. And in the third chapter, he talks about how often... The anger that people feel, this is not just marriage, this is just life. The anger that we feel, go back on the last month, think of times that you were angry. How many of them were for the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or were they not often for your kingdom? Someone has violated your expectation of how things are supposed to be. And this is Moses and Aaron at that moment. The moment they step out of God's will for them, and especially in a moment they were called to show grace and mercy and made it about their own vendetta, they have left aside their callings as prophets and priests. What's the consequence for this? Aaron forfeits his opportunity to enjoy the promised land. I want to be clear, he doesn't forfeit eternal life. That had been promised on a better basis. The promise given to Abraham and his descendants had nothing to do with one's own works, other than as evidence of faith. But it was purely founded on God's gracious promise. And yet there are blessings in this life that we should desire to experience and sometimes the Lord takes away as discipline. I know that there are better things than marriage and glory and yet it's understandable people might want to be married. There are better things than our earthly vocations and yet people long to have a certain career. For so many years... While in slavery and then tantalizingly after being brought out of slavery for 40 years, Aaron was looking forward to tasting of the promised land. 
The promised land was an enormous sacrament, a sign, a seal of the grace of God that was promised through faith. He wanted to go forth and experience that, and like his brother Moses, he would not get to experience that in this life. There are consequences, even in this life, for not upholding the holiness of God. And that is especially true of leaders. In fact, I invite you to turn and look with me at 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Among the New Testament epistles of Paul. Because this underscores the fact that Aaron's long service does not take away his responsibility. But isn't that a temptation at times? We feel that because we've been faithful for a length of time that God will overlook our sins. That there will be no discipline. Even though 1 Corinthians says he disciplines every son whom he loves. 1 Timothy 5 verse 19 concerning leaders in the church it says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Aaron was not above consequences. In fact, just as our discipline given through the apostles is public among the congregation, so Aaron is sent up the mountain. Everyone is going to see this. He lived his life in the public, and the judgments come in the public. And so the Lord is fair to do that. But it's not only leaders either. 1 Peter chapter 2 speaks of all of us as priests. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, in some sense, you have been set apart for holiness. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, he's speaking to a whole church, and he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you to consider yourself as you truly are. If you are in Jesus Christ, if your faith is in him, if his Holy Spirit dwells in you and has begun a good work, you exist as a priest as someone set apart by God for his glorification, for the good of others, as one who intercedes whenever possible for the welfare of his people and as a light in the world. And for that reason, this story of the consequences upon Aaron, it does underscore to us the responsibility that we have, both in the Old and the New Testament. Believers may be disciplined if they do not uphold Judgment may be through the discipline of the church or it may be through circumstances in life. Relationships that break down, jobs that fail, diseases, etc. The Lord knows exactly how to get to the hearts of his own. But the Lord would have you consider that the duty to uphold God's holiness. I am so thankful that is not the end of what this passage says, though. That's an important lesson, but... We need more than that. We need a sense that it is God's grace which upholds our holiness. And that is the second, the final main idea that we consider together. 
In fact, I invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews, to Hebrews 11. We'll come in just a moment to verse 39. Hebrews 11, and I'll put it to you as a question again. How does Aaron's death show us in any way that the Lord upholds your holiness? How might it remind us of that? I direct your attention to the fact of his dying upon that mountain, that there is a further significance there, that he's taken up there. And again, the purpose in interpreting the Bible More often than not, I don't think. The purpose is not to find strange pictures, but clear patterns. Clear patterns that are themselves illuminated by the Bible. And often very practical insights. I don't claim to come up with all the insights that I share. There's a history of godly people through the ages reflecting and asking, how do these things speak to us concerning Christ? Aaron is brought atop this mountain, and this is, again, just a practical insight. We should not understand this simply as an act of divine judgment, though it is discipline. But in his dying moments, where is he brought? He's brought off the plain to a place where he's able to see the promised land. Even if he doesn't touch it, he can still embrace by faith what it signifies. Moses gets the same treatment. Abraham has a similar treatment. Though he never possesses the land, yet near to his death, the Lord brings him up and says, look at it, it is going to be yours. And when we are mindful of our failures, when we stand as all of us will at the very edge of our own mortality, it is then at that moment we must cast our eyes upon what has been promised to us. If in my dying moment I am not able to partake of the Lord's Supper, I hope I remember it and think, what did that signify to me? Even if I don't feel it in my mouth, the promise in my heart is true. Jesus Christ has shed his blood for me. The promised land was a picture of the age to come, of your life with him forever. Who can experience anything of this life with even an ounce of holy ambition and be satisfied? Are you not tormented at times by the seeming vanity of the brevity of your life and how short we fall of the holiness we yearn for, all of it is yours in Christ. And when you feel beset by your failure to uphold the holiness of the Lord, don't stay staring there. You go up and you look at the promise. You say, that is mine in Jesus Christ. It cannot be taken away from me. That is the only way that you'll ever have true holiness and not just some kind of cheap morality. And so we're called up in that way. Hebrews chapter 11, look at me at verse 39. Speaking of all of the believers, Aaron included in the Old Testament. Verse 39, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, They should not be made perfect. The things they were longing for weren't simply the tangible things of that land. They were looking forward to what we, the all of us here, Gentile and Jew alike, brought together in faith, will have in glory. And it wasn't simply about ministering grace to Aaron. In fact, look with me at Numbers chapter 20, if you have maintained a mark there, or simply listen carefully. Numbers 20, verse 27 
where it says, In the sight of all the congregation, verse 28, Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eliezer, his son. And Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. What would it have felt like for the children of Israel, not having the fullness of the clarity that we have as New Testament believers, to see their high priest, the first one, the only one they had known, essentially sentenced to death. This was the person God had appointed to be the assurance that they have a way of mediation with the Lord. And the Lord does not, in his mercy at this time in the history of Israel, leave them without a sign of that intercession. But he provides for them, even at that time, to see in the sight of everybody a transfer of those priestly duties over to the Son. That would have ministered great comfort to them. All of those outward garments signifying the righteousness, the acceptability of the priest. But how much more for those of us who have the understanding of what God has done in Jesus Christ, that we have a high priest who cannot die, who ever lives to make intercession for you, who is clothed, acceptable in his sight. And so again, we are called through this to understand it's not just about Aaron's individual comfort, but that God wants his whole people to be upheld in the hope that they have such a high priest. Here together with me, chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 18 and following. Here, the writer is expounding the significance of these sayings, of the contrast between mountains of judgment, like Sinai, and the hope of Jerusalem as a picture of the promises in Christ. Hebrews 12, verse 18. You, that is you who have believed have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, that if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Here, when the Lord was revealing the law, the same summary of the Ten Commandments we heard earlier in the service, he told everyone, if you touch the mountain, you will die. So holy is this law that if you try to tread my mountain in your own righteousness, you will perish. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, we've come to something, but it's not like that. When we approach God's holy mountain clothed in Christ, we haven't come to something that will kill us if we touch it. Because we have been made acceptable. It says, going on verse 21, or rather 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator or priest of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Blood of Abel refers to the murder by Cain, and the blood of Abel, according to the law, cried out for vengeance. The blood of Christ speaks a better word. It says, I cover your sin. When Aaron goes up, he goes up and faces consequences for his sin. But there is another, I hope it is of no surprise to you, who went up a mountain. 
when Christ as the ultimate high priest, the one who's fulfilling this picture orchestrated by the Holy Spirit, when he goes up Golgotha to be crucified, he goes for our sins in order that he might bear them and bear his own blood into the presence of the Father. In this story, the Holy Spirit brings you back to a sense all the while, in the midst of 123 years of Aaron's long life of sin, God all the while is committed to his covenant. Whether you live briefly, as we would see it, or 124 years, this can be our only hope. The question that you're brought to is really the question of whether or not you will perish in the wilderness of unbelief. And I don't mean that simply for those who have never made a profession of faith in Christ. The book of Hebrews, again, deals with all kinds of people who are professing Christians, but who look somewhere other than the righteousness of Christ for their holiness, for sufficiency. And so by way of conclusion, I want to exhort you in just a few ways. First, I want to give you an opportunity, not aloud, but in your heart, an opportunity to confess to free yourself, to rid yourself of falsity, simply to confess, I have not upheld the holiness of the Lord. Forgiveness begins with confession of our need of forgiveness. Pardon belongs to those who proclaim before the Lord without hesitation, I need covering. And the Lord calls us to that. Remember the standard that lays upon us, Matthew 5, verse 48. Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Though you are weak through sin, it's not unjust to the Lord to ask of you holiness. It's like a person who drinks himself incapable of walking a straight line. It's not the officer's fault for asking them to. And yet, if we will confess our sin then we have the hope that Christ is sufficient. I encourage you to do that. What was it that Aaron was supposed to do that he got in so much trouble for? He's supposed to, again, speak with Moses to the rock. If you will, at any time, whether today or this week or in your dying hour, though I hope it's not, I hope you don't delay, if you will but speak to Christ and ask for the water, He will gush forth with full, plenteous pardon. The worst of the sins that may yet lie in your future. The water flows and it satisfies not only you, but a multitude no one can number. But don't stop there. Beyond that believing in for yourself, recognize that having been called as a priest... You bear this message to others. You are a minister of it. May you see your life as one where your holiness directs people to the power of Christ to transform. Where you direct them to that same source of water. Where you don't seize upon opportunities to vent your own anger, but to minister mercy in the Lord. 1 Peter 2 verse 5, and then we'll close in prayer. 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says, You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, a temple to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable now to God through Jesus Christ. 
Your sacrifices are acceptable. Your imperfect holiness is an acceptable holiness in Christ. And may that then spur us as we seek to walk in his way. Let's ask him to help us even now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have not left your people to their own strength. We thank you that week upon week you call us back to the memory of your power. We thank you for Christ our Savior that he did not consider himself above our nature or even above bearing the sin and shame on the cross. Our Lord, we ask that you would please more and more transform us, renew us, cleanse us, refresh us through the water of the gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit. For in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.